Australia is about to hold its first federal election since record-breaking bushfires, fueled at least in part by intense heat and drought, and made worse by climate change. Flames have been reported to have reached 70 metres high, but these pictures uh, from Monday show huge blazes in the state of Victoria. The plume of smoke generated by the inferno covers five and a half million square kilometres. That's the size of Europe. The fires finally died out just over two years ago after burning for nearly a year across 60 million acres. Around the world, the fires were covered as a wake-up call on climate change. But in Australia, the government under Conservative Prime Minister Scott Morrison has seemed more concerned with putting a positive spin on its climate record in the lead-up to this weekend's election. Soon after the fires, the government proposed a gas-fired recovery from the pandemic. And in 2020, Australia became the world's biggest exporter of gas, with the government scrambling to fast-track projects including fracking on Indigenous lands and offshore drilling. To help sell its expansion into gas, the Morrison government has invested in promoting new technologies including carbon capture and storage and a product it calls clean hydrogen, made from coal and gas. We're investing billions in projects like hydrogen halves and seaweed for feed, yum! In the lead-up to the election, the government ran an unprecedented ad campaign, branding its investment in new technologies as positive energy. Australia's making positive energy and there's more on the way. We've put solar panels here, here and there. In fact, more than one in four homes have solar. The slogan is weirdly similar to the theme of this week's Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association's conference, Positive Energy for a Changing World. Both major parties, Morrison's Conservative Liberal Party and the more centre-left Labour Party, sent speakers to the conference just days before the election. But despite all this talk of positive energy, many Australians are heading to the election with less positive feelings about climate change. The country is yet to truly reckon with the fires that burned out a little over two years ago, and already this year there have been floods, heat waves, and mass bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. The government's positive spin on future technologies that will allow the gas industry to keep polluting today also downplays other problems for the fossil fuel industry, including the growing costs and pollution risks of ageing coal mines and rusting oil rigs. The industry is facing a growing bill to clean up its old infrastructure, but some companies have been finding creative solutions, including one company which hopes government grants and commercial customers for carbon capture and storage will help it deal with an empty hole at the bottom of the Timor Sea. That's the story that we're digging into today on Drilled. I'm Lyndall Rowlands, reporting from Australia. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath 
of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. In 2019, Australia signed a new treaty with Timor-Leste, recognising that oil and gas fields in the Timor Sea that Australia had laid claim to for decades were in fact in Timorese waters. But by the time the treaty was signed, many of the most viable oil and gas fields in the Timor Sea were close to empty. Instead, what was left were rusting oil rigs, hundreds of kilometres of pipelines and empty wells under the sea that would need to be filled with concrete. Decommissioning is a growing challenge for the Australian oil and gas industry and was recently estimated that removal of oil and gas equipment and plugging wells will cost around 52 billion Australian dollars. Here's Adrian Evans from the Maritime Union of Australia. Uh, There's currently 1,008 offshore wells, 57 fixed facilities, six and a half thousand kilometres of pipeline, 1,500 kilometres of umbilicals and some 535 subsea structures such as manifolds. Evans was speaking at a Senate inquiry that was called after an Australian company, Woodside, sold two oil fields in the Timor Sea to a company which soon went bankrupt. These two oil fields came with a rusting oil platform called the Northern Endeavour and clean-up costs to prevent potential spills. The Northern Endeavour is still there. It's rusting, it's leaking, it's in terrible shape, and it's potentially a huge danger uh, to both Timor-Leste and Australia if if it fully leaks out what it has. Charles Shiner has spent decades researching oil and gas revenues in the Timor Sea for the Timorese think tank Lao Hamatuk. It'll cost somewhere around 200 million, more than 200 million dollars to decommission the Northern Endeavour and Laminara Carolina and bring it to a safe condition. After the inquiry, the federal government introduced a levy on Australian oil exports to pay for the decommissioning of the Northern Endeavour. But this didn't make companies like Chevron, which would have to pay a larger share of the costs, exactly happy. The decision to impose the costs on all companies did benefit at least one company, though. Woodside, which sold the Northern Endeavour just before it began to rust into the sea. Somehow doesn't have any responsibility, even though they're the ones who made all the money from this field. He says this is not the first time that Woodside has benefited from the Australian government's decisions in the Timor Sea. Woodside is politically well-connected enough that it could wipe its hands and walk away and somehow doesn't have any responsibility, even though they're the ones who made all the money from this field. But the two fields Woodside abandoned weren't the only fields in the Timor Sea that need to be decommissioned. Further east is a much larger field known as Bayou Undan. In 2019, another Australian company, Santos, purchased ConocoPhillips' interests in the Timor Sea, including Bayou Undan, as well as another field that has yet to be developed in the Australian part of the Timor Sea, called Barossa. 
Jason Fowler is a marine ecologist with the Environment Centre Northern Territory. Santos are up for about a billion dollar bill to decommission the old Bayou and Dunn field. Now the reason for this is because there is dozens and dozens of gas wells out there. They all need to be uh, properly capped and sealed so you need to pump concrete in them and really seal them up properly so they never ever leak. You know if they do leak you, you could very well have oil and condensate and gas bubbling up to the surface forever and which forms you know permanent pollution which is something you don't want to ever see. But Santos has announced that its plans could potentially offset or at least delay some of the costs of decommissioning Bayou Undan by turning the empty field into a carbon capture and storage project. Here's Dina Rui from Jubilee, Australia. So what they want to do is they want to pipe the gas from the Barossa gas field to Darwin, extract the CO2, and then pipe the gas for 500 kilometres out to the Bioundan facilities again. At Santos' recent annual general meeting, the chair of the board, Keith Spence, described the proposal as a bold plan to repurpose Bioundan facilities for carbon capture and storage after gas production ceases. Spence said Bioundan could store up to 10 million tonnes of CO2 per year, including 2.3 million tonnes of CO2 from the Barossa which Santos claims would make the Barossa one of the lowest carbon gas projects in the world. Santos says it's already had expressions of interest from commercial customers in South Korea and Japan who want to store their CO2 at Bayou Undan. Gas from the Barossa will be exported to countries including Japan and Korea. But the South Korean organisation Solutions for Our Climate has launched a court case claiming that claims about the Barossa project and carbon capture and storage amount to greenwashing. Here's Dong Zhe, a researcher with Solutions for Our Climate. Especially with the Barossa gas project, their claim is that um, it would use carbon capture and storage, um, also called as um, CCS technology, in the production stage. But um, according to their plan, assuming it even works, they will only capture about 16% of the total projected amount of emissions. On top of that, um, they plan to compress carbon dioxide and transport this over um, 900 kilometers of pipeline, which would actually end up producing so much emission that um, so much um, additional emission that it would negate the entire purpose of um, adding CCS. Solutions for our climate are also concerned that the Korean government is underwriting fossil fuel expansion in Australia through its export credit agency. Our government gave about $127 billion for the last 10 years to the overseas oil and gas projects. Even if Santos's claims that Bayou Undan can store 10 million tonnes of CO2 per year are true, its proposal to store CO2 underwater hundreds of kilometres out to sea is much more logistically complicated than other more simple carbon capture and storage projects that have failed to meet their targets. And as we know, CSS is an unproven and very expensive technology and it doesn't really work at a large scale. And this has actually never been done at an offshore facility like BioUndan before. So again, Santos is just using CCS as a greenwashing tool to push through one of the dirtiest gas projects in Australia and possibly the world. 
Rui says Barossa has yet to be drilled because it has much higher concentrations of CO2 than other fields in the Timor Sea. So the Barossa gas field is one of the dirtiest gas projects in the world. It has double the amount of CO2 at 18% of any other offshore Australian gas fields currently in operation. And this is important because the Barossa gas is supposed to be piped to Darwin LNG. And this is actually, so 18% is three times the CO2 content that the Darwin LNG facility can actually handle. So what Santos is planning to do, and they've said this themselves, is to vent two thirds of the CO2 from the Barossa field directly into the atmosphere before the gas is even piped into Darwin. And if you look at how much LNG that the Barossa gas will actually produce, it will produce more emissions than LNG. So the Barossa gas is going to produce 3.7 million tons of LNG every year. At the same time as it's going to produce 5.4 million tons of CO2 emissions every year. The high CO2 concentration at Barossa hasn't deterred Santos, which also plans to build hundreds of kilometres of underwater pipe so that it can send the gas from the Barossa field to Darwin, where it plans to take some of the CO2 out before piping it into another part of the Timor Sea for storage at Bayou Undan. The new Barossa pipeline would pass through nesting areas for turtles. To lay the pipeline through that area... You literally, you have a, a giant pipeline ship, which is up to 65 metres high. It has a big light at the top, which is super bright. They measure the brightness in intensities of full moons to give you an idea of how bright this thing is. And that, that's obviously going to have an impact on, on turtle nesting and also baby turtles that hatch and come off the beach because turtles are attracted to light. And you may end up in a situation where baby turtles are all rushing towards the pipeline ship and uh, accumulating in the, in, the, in the light spill area behind the ship. And this means that they're up in bright lights. Santos has said that it can manage these risks. For Santos, the plan means that not only can they tell investors that the Barossa gas project will have low CO2 emissions, they can also keep the Bayou Undan field open longer. But logistics aren't the only issue with this proposal. As Shiner from the Timorese think tank Lau Hamatuk points out, while Barossa is in the Australian part of the Timor Sea, the 2019 agreement between Timor-Leste and Australia recognised that Bayou Undan was in Timorese waters. The boundary agreement that Australia finally reluctantly signed uh, was delayed until Bayou Undan was almost empty. So Bayou Undan will store the CO2 from another field in Australian waters after it's been returned to Timor-Leste a country with a much smaller carbon emissions per person than Australia. Safety commissioning in the Timor Sea also remains a local environmental issue, with the effects of a 2009 oil spill still being felt. Local communities there are still dealing with the legacy of the Mantara oil spill in 2009, which damaged the livelihoods of thousands of seabed farmers. 
Santos' plan to store CO2 at Bayu Undan means that it would potentially make more money from the facility before paying decommissioning costs. However, Shiner also notes that this potentially just delays these costs. So decommissioning is a, is a different issue. I mean, decommissioning, you're dealing with all of the toxic chemicals, with the oil that can still leak out, with whatever other things that are on the site, rusting metal structures and, and whatever. Um, and that's a local danger. The CO2 is a global danger. The CO2 uh, adds to the carbon in the atmosphere, adds to global climate change. After the northern endeavour was left rusting in the Timor Sea, the Australian government regulator began to tighten up rules around decommissioning. Since tighter regulations were introduced, Santos is not the only company to propose carbon capture and storage as an option for an old offshore field. But carbon capture and storage isn't the only way that companies have been finding creative ways to decommission offshore projects. Woodside had a mooring out there, a riser turret mooring, um, and it had kept this riser turret mooring in such disrepair that it was unable to, well, purportedly unable to bring it on shore for um, proper disposal. Uh, and as a consequence, Woodside proposed to um, basically pick up this two and a half thousand ton piece of metal and plastic and tow it about a kilometre away from Ningaloo World Heritage Area listed reef and um, leave it there to create what they called an integrated artificial reef. A recent Freedom of Information request from the Australian Conservation Foundation found that the Australian Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment had expressed concerns about Woodside's plan to decommission one of its offshore oil rigs by dumping it near a World Heritage-listed coral reef. This is Annika Shu, a researcher with the Australian Conservation Foundation. There were there was language like this. Um, the some of the chemicals, for example, in the riser turret mooring are highly acutely toxic to aquatic organisms. They couldn't rule out risk to human health. Another thing that was raised by the department was twelve point four tons of plastic which would be leached into the environment and probably consumed by turtles and um, marine animals in the receiving area. The department themselves described it as questionable um, and, and and it was really nice to see public servants giving frank and fearless advice and the environment department doing its job and that is coming to a really tough but fair interim decision on the matter. Basically they contacted um, the company and said we are intending to reject this we think it's contrary to international law on sea dumping and there are a number of other bits of information that go against Uh, and then the company decided to withdraw the application. Yet despite Woodside's record on decommissioning Shu notes that it has recently purchased more aging offshore assets to the southeast of Australia in the Bass Strait. Two weeks before the election, the Morrison government quietly released a report detailing the extent of another mass bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, it's extremely ironic, isn't it? I think, I mean, you could dump a shopping trolley in the ocean and something will um, live in it, but is that the same kind of biodiversity that you see at Ningaloo Reef? Um, No, that is virtually impossible. These hard coral reefs are irreplaceable. And, and have huge benefits and serve um, human life and all other forms of life on this planet. 
Before calling the election, the Morrison government announced a further round of funding for new technologies and the expansion of gas projects around the country. Australia's gas exports have grown significantly in the past 10 years, yet this didn't stop the government from promoting itself with a multi-million dollar greenwashing ad in the lead-up to the election. Australia's making positive energy and there's more on the way. We've put solar panels here, here and there. In fact, more than one in four homes have solar, eh? Ooh, that's a nice lake. Nice, because it's also a battery. Storing energy for our fish tanks and hairdos. Looking good. We're investing billions in projects like hydrogen halves and seaweed for feed. Yum. Which means thousands more jobs and even less emissions. Because what we do today will define our tomorrow. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. In contrast to the environmental impacts of climate change that Australians have seen since the last election, the ads were bright and upbeat. Well, the Positive Energy campaign looks like a children's TV program. It's got green rolling hills, trees, cows and and flying scooters. It uses big, bold graphics, uh, fun, quirky. It's forward-focused and positive. Um, The campaign is basically everything the Australian government isn't. Belinda Noble from Comms Declare says that the positive energy ad campaign was unusual, even for the Australian government, under Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who has a background in marketing. The terms clean, uh, hydrogen and positive energy, um, the use of those terms is a deliberate strategy by the government to misinform the public about what they really want to do, which is to continue to be one of the world's top exporters of fossil fuels. The ads referred specifically to government investments in so-called clean hydrogen. But a closer look at the website, which accompanied the Positive Energy ad campaign, included more details about what the government meant by clean hydrogen and how it's connected to carbon capture and storage. The website says carbon capture use and storage allows Australian coal and gas to be transformed into clean hydrogen and that carbon capture use and storage can permanently cut emissions from a range of sectors. If you listened to our last episode from Australia, you would have also heard how these plans for an industrial hub on the lands of the Larrakia people will include factories that will turn gas into plastics and other petrochemical products from fracking on Indigenous lands. Despite the Australian government's optimism for carbon capture and storage, to date, researchers say that even some of the world's most ambitious and expensive carbon capture and storage projects have only stored relatively small amounts of CO2 usually much less than the projects were supposed to hold. And unlike the plans at Bayou Undan, these projects weren't hundreds of kilometres away from the initial source of CO2 via underwater pipes. But the CO2 will have to still be contained in that, that site if it's stored there. And this is underground, underwater. It's right. captured and stored very well by the rocks under the Timor Sea. They've held it for hundreds of millions of years. So to take it out and then put some of it back is a bit crazy that site if it's stored there. And this is underground, underwater, right? As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, positive energy for a changing world was also strangely the theme of the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association's conference, which attracted speakers from both major parties just a few days before the election. Yes, quite uh, the coincidence that uh, the gas lobby is using the same language as the Australian government. Um, and that's the language of positive energy. 
After years of increasingly severe fires, floods and heat waves, many Australians don't share these same positive feelings towards climate change. The Labor Party has taken a muted approach to climate change to the election a few years after the mining industry and Rupert Murdoch's News Corp led a backlash against Labor's more ambitious climate policies. This election will not only determine which major party will form government, but will also show how many Australians are ready to walk away from the major parties as they continue to support fossil fuel expansion.